0: This morning, we're going to continue our uh, New Creation and Sexuality Sermon Series. So as they say on uh, national public radio, we will be acknowledging the reality of sex uh, in this sermon. Um, rated PG-ish is what I would, what I would say. Um, if you can, turn in your Bibles to the New Testament book of Acts, please. Uh, we don't have our screen today on purpose, as Pastor Michelle said, um, let me challenge you, if you normally y- use your Bible on your phone, don't even pull your phone out to look at the Bible verse. Just let me read it for you. See if you can go two hours without touching your phone today, without getting the shakes. See if you can just put it away in your pocket or your purse for the next uh, next few minutes. Acts chapter 15, if you have one of the old school Bibles, Acts chapter 15, verses 12 through 21. And if you're able, would you stand, please, for the reading of God's word? Acts chapter 15, verses 12 through 21. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophet are written in agreement with this. As it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. Verse 19, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, Telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is the word of God. And you can be seated. Uh, So, from this and a few other passages this morning, I'll preach from the title Dangerous Sexuality. And again, this is part. Uh, five of our series will wrap it up uh, next Sunday. Over these past few weeks, I think we found that one of the challenges um, about thinking about sexuality and sex is how to do so in light of the new creation that was won for us by Jesus on the cross. The resurrection of Jesus was God's eternal yes to the goodness of His creations. This world and all of its ferocious and fragile beauty matters deeply to God. When the Son of God submitted his body to our sin, God was dealing directly with the evil that has assaulted his creation. And when the Son of God got up from the grave, flesh and blood bearing our scars, God was shouting this affirmation over the jewel of his creation, you. Embodied image bearer of the living God, women and men whose creation elicited joy and a cry of very good from the Creator on the very first day of our existence. This is the context from which we as Christian people are called to think about sex and sexuality. This is difficult. Because for many of us, sex has become closely associated with shame or abuse, with transactional and transient relationships. And we can't ignore these painful distortions to our sexuality, but neither can we acquiesce to them. We who swear our faithful allegiance to the resurrected Messiah must constantly return to the new creation he has won and is winning. Nothing less than new creation can be a foundation strong enough for our sexuality. Beth Felker-Jones, who's a theology professor, writes this. She says, if sex is real, if bodies matter, then we are accountable to something beyond ourselves, something beyond whatever is in fashion or whatever the market will bear. We are accountable, she says, to reality to truth and goodness and beauty. I think she's right. We are accountable to reality, and for us, that reality is the new creation that was won by Jesus on the cross. We are accountable to God's reality of truth and goodness and beauty. Which brings us to our passage, Acts 15. The gospel was spreading beyond its Uh, Palestinian origins, beyond its Jewish origins. And Gentiles were converting to Jesus. And this was a surprise to many of the Jewish leaders. They had missed that when Jesus told them that the gospel would in fact go to the ends of the earth. Jesus actually meant it. And the Gentiles were hearing the good news and they were converting to the way of Jesus. And so now came an important question Do Gentiles have to become Jews before they become Christians? Do Gentiles have to become circumcised in order to be acceptable to God and to follow Jesus? It's not a question that you and I wrestle with, but it was the question for the early church. What is required, what is necessary for me to accept Jesus as my Savior and my Lord? And so a council was called, the leaders called together other leaders from the early churches and after prayer and discernment and studying the scriptures together, they realized that there was no reason for Gentiles to first become Jews in order to be acceptable to God. They realized that the good news about Jesus was available to everyone right where they were, which is still good news today, amen? And then we read this in verse 20, James reflecting on their season of discernment. He says, instead, we should write to them, these Gentile Christians, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. What is that all about? (laughs) If circumcision, the central divide between Jew and Gentile, was no longer an issue, why give these new Gentile Christians these three ethical requirements? Stay away from food sacrificed to idols, stay away from sexual immorality, and stay away from food with blood in it. What's that about? Why not simply celebrate the Gentile's reception of the gospel and leave it at that? Well, I think the first and the third requirements are actually pretty straightforward. Within a cultural context that worshipped many Greek and Roman gods, the Jewish Christians were reminding their new Gentile Christian family that there was only one God who'd been revealed by Jesus Christ, who had rescued them from their sin. So that one's pretty straightforward. The third one, when it came to abstaining from food made with blood, I think is also relatively simple. The Jewish Christians were asking for grace from their Gentile Christian family. The Jewish Christians were reminding their Gentile Christian that for that for Jewish, uh, 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 for Jewish people, eating food with blood was um, uh, not allowed in the Old Testament law, and so they were asking their Gentile family and the Christian faith to respect their religious and cultural traditions as a way to maintain unity in the church. Are you with me with both of these two? So that leaves the one in the middle, avoiding sexual morality. Now, it's true, as we've pointed out already in this series, that when the gospel spread from Palestine into the Roman world, it entered into a sexually complex world. The norms and expectations of the Jewish world quickly faded into a culture of religious prostitutes, of purposefully sexless marriages, of entire economies built on the buying and selling of sexualized religious artifacts. So on the one hand, the Jerusalem Council was simply recognizing the fact that the gospel was now encountering different sets of questions than it had within its Jewish context. Pretty straightforward. But I actually think there's another layer to the council's decision to include this language about sexual immorality. I think that they knew something that you and I have largely forgotten when it comes to sex and sexuality, and it's simply this, sexuality is dangerous. When we zoom out from this passage, it's not hard to imagine that the Jewish Christians wanted to remind their new Gentile family that the way they had thought about sexuality and sex was going to change because of their friendship with God. And part of this change in thinking, a large part, was to realize that there is nothing safe about sex. Sex and sexuality, for Christians, are inherently dangerous. What do I mean when I say that sexuality is dangerous? I want to suggest uh, three ways in, wh- in which sexuality and thus sex is dangerous for Christian people, and they are these. Sexuality is dangerous because it reflects God's holiness. Sexuality is dangerous because it makes us vulnerable. Vulnerable. And sexuality is dangerous because it points the world to God's salvation. And so we'll spend the next few minutes looking at these three. The first, sexuality is dangerous because it reflects God's holiness. We've referenced this passage a few different times, but in uh, Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, Is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for any reason that he happens to be feeling on that day. And Jesus replies in Matthew 19, verses four through six, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. We don't have time to go into all of this. If you've not been here for these Um, sermons. You can catch up on the podcasts. But briefly, when asked the question about divorce and marriage, Jesus actually goes in a different, bigger direction. He points back to God's intentions for our sexuality. We are created, Jesus says, in the image of God, and our sexuality is a critical expression of this. Now, why is this dangerous? Why is it Why is our sexuality dangerous in the way that it reflects God's image? Well, the God in whose image you were created is not a God of your own making. This is the creator God who is holy and righteous and just. This is the God whose wrath burns against injustice and evil and sin. This is the God from whom all creation derives its purpose and meaning. The most common reaction in the Bible when facing God or one of God's angelic messengers is what? Terror. <laughs> to fall on the ground in absolute trembling fear. God tells Moses, no one can see me and live. This is the image, this is the kind of God in whose image we are created. And I wonder whether we remember that our sexuality is is meant to reflect this holy God. Think of the language that we hear and use about sexuality We say that someone is experimenting with their sexuality. We talk about casual sex, sexting. I've had too many conversations with men and husbands who have rationalized their addiction to pornography, saying, well, it's just normal now. All of this, all of our language and assumptions in this area can miss the holiness of our sexuality. All of our transactional and pragmatic metaphors betray a view of sex that is safe, controllable, and serviceable to our particular desires at any given moment. We do not tremble at the thought of our own sexuality or the sexuality of our friend. We are not caught up short by the miracle that is the embodied immortal sitting next to you right Now. But despite every attempt by a jaded and cynical culture, the scriptures continue to proclaim the holy beauty of our humanity. The sum of your body cannot be reduced to its individual parts or urges or regrets. Your body is holy, set apart by the God who made you holy and who loves you. So sexuality is dangerous because it reflects God's holiness. Second, sexuality is dangerous because it makes us vulnerable. We, I would suggest in our culture especially, desperately want to believe that sex can be made safe, that our sexuality can be tamed. In fact, there's little question that our sexuality makes us vulnerable. We can watch the ideological battles play out about how best to mitigate our vulnerabilities. I'd suggest that if you lean kind of to the ideological left, then you tend to look for more information and more education to mitigate the vulnerabilities of your sexuality. If you lean to the ideological right, the tendency is to identify certain people who you deem to be vulnerable and then to protect them. In both cases, the solutions do not address the fundamental reality, which is that sexuality is dangerous precisely because it makes us vulnerable. Any attempt to cover up that vulnerability inevitably leads us away from the flourishing that our sexuality actually designed us for. Again, think about the ideological right for a second. Here you get developed these kind of weird purity cultures that prize specific forms of sexual purity, usually for who? Young women, right? Anybody read this story about Maddie Runkles this week? the graduating senior from the Christian school in Maryland who, because she became pregnant, was not allowed to walk across the stage at her graduation. haven't been able to find anything about the young man. On the left, the idea is that if we simply talk enough about sex, if we simply make sex a topic like any other, if we simply act like the rational people we know ourselves to be, then sex can be experienced like any other aspect of our transactional society. As long as we make clear the contractual expectations ahead of time, preferably through the use of the latest app, then we can experience sex on our terms for our purposes. There was an essay this week in the New York Times about one of these dating apps. I can't remember the name of it. It was written actually by a graduating senior here at the University of Chicago. And she had met somebody on an app where... I guess the, the idea is that you don't actually form a, you're you not supposed to form a relationship. That's kind of precluded. It's just more for, for intimate hookups. And she had connected with this person, and they kind of established a, a weekly routine where they would meet one another. And she writes this. Dating apps are the courtship equivalent of next-day shipping, where you don't have to twiddle your thumbs and wait for an adequate romantic prospect to drift by. They release a flood of potential suitors, your inbox notifications flashing red with heartbeats of their own. It's nice to imagine that Michael liked me the most, but even if that were true, I'm not sure what it counts for in a dating scene of instant gratification with seemingly unlimited choice. After all, dating apps never announce, congratulations, you've matched with everyone you could possibly like. They tempt you to keep swiping as you whiz through tens, hundreds, or even thousands of profiles, you can only infer the obvious. Out of all these people, there's got to be someone better than the person I'm seeing right now. Which means that monogamy requires more sacrifice than ever. If offered free travel, why would anyone settle for one place when it's possible to tour the entire world? I'm not sure I quite follow the metaphor of traveling the entire world, but you can, I get what she's saying. And she writes about her experience with this young man, Michael, and how much to her surprise, after four or five, six weeks of seeing him, she found that she actually liked him. And she wanted to express that, but didn't feel like she was really allowed to, given the constrictions of this particular dating act, but she finally risked it and texted him and let him know that she, she had fallen in like with him. And he texted back and said, "I like you too." but I'm not ready for anything remotely like monogamy. She writes this. A mere six weeks after our first date, we were over. I'd broken the rules. My glimmer of expressed affection had led to a fatal imbalance in the game. The problem isn't with Michael. The problem isn't with with someone who wants to be with however many people he wants to be with at any given time. The problem is with her. That she broke the rules of the game. It's her fault. And this is why it falls apart. Our solutions to mitigate our vulnerability, regardless of which direction we end up leaning in, don't actually end up helping us. Romelia when she preached last week, reminded us that our sexuality can make us vulnerable to great abuse, especially given the connections between what she defined as our genital sexuality and our social sexualities. If you missed her sermon, you have to listen to the podcast. This abuse is rampant in our society. If national statistics are reflective of this room, then about a third of us have been sexually abused in some way. My Punch would be that that number is actually low depending on how we were to define it. Sexuality is dangerous because we are made vulnerable by it. One of the kind of strange and surprising things about the Bible is how it recognizes this vulnerability in all of its chaos and complexities, marital dysfunction, rape, childless marriages, relational hierarchies, and on and on it goes. And yet rather than acknowledging these vulnerabilities that are inherent to our humanity, to our sexuality, we grasp for solutions to elevate us beyond our vulnerability. But in denying our vulnerability, we find something worse awaiting us, loneliness. Whether we are single or married, I have found in my conversations with you that loneliness is one of the most common attributes of our sexuality. In seeking to overcome sexual vulnerability that is actually natural to our humanity, we end up building shields and walls instead. We deny to ourselves and to one another that we are actually tender creatures. We project images of the perfect marriage of the strong and contented single life we look to technologies to make us less vulnerable birth control to keep us from pregnancy medical wizardry to make us pregnant a variety of dating apps depending on our particular relational or sexual desire social media as a way to experience people without having to know to, to actually you know experience people and on and on it goes Are these technologies bad? Are they good? I don't think they're neutral. I think many times they make to us promises about what is possible, about how we might overcome the vulnerabilities of our humanities, And many of us, having believed these promises, are surprised to find how lonely we are left. Sexuality is dangerous because it makes us vulnerable. And despite what cultural partisans say, our hope does not lie with overcoming our vulnerabilities and accepting the inevitable loneliness. No, our hope lies with embracing the vulnerabilities of our humanity, including embracing the vulnerability of our sexuality. This vulnerability is one of the necessary building blocks for Christ-centered community where we are known and where we are loved for who we are, for what we have experienced and suffered in this life. Vulnerability is necessary not only because it is natural to our God-given humanity, but because it expresses God's Salvation to us. Vulnerability, I want you to hear this please, is not a cheap Christian cliche. One word among others pasted onto a soft focus motivational poster. Vulnerability is the cross. Vulnerability is God taking on to his divine self our humanity, our suffering, our abuse. Vulnerability is the Son of God, tempted and tried, tired and thirsty, abandoned and betrayed. God's vulnerability is our redemption. So while while our vulnerability in this life is dangerous, we can embrace it because God made himself vulnerable to us. And embracing our vulnerability, we find deeper and deeper and more secure places within community. Loneliness begins to fade. Number three, sexuality is dangerous because it points to God's salvation. Sexuality is dangerous because it points to God's salvation. I think we saw this concept when we asked the question a few weeks ago, what is sex? For. And while sex is for many things, ultimately within the context of covenant marriage between a woman and a man, it is to demonstrate God's, sac- God's sacrificial love for humanity. Good sex is sex that points beyond itself, beyond the sexual partners, and to the one who created them. The New Testament book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, is a record of God's revelation to John. It's a revelation about God's new creation, which has been won by Jesus and will one day come in its finality. John had been exiled by the empire, by Rome to the Isle of Patmos. And here he was given a glimpse into God's future where evil will finally be defeated and where we will find our forever home with God in his renewed world. And I want you to listen now to the imagery that John sees to describe God's cosmic salvation. This is in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! The old order of death and pain and mourning and crying will pass away under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the image that John uses to describe God's salvation, it's a wedding. God's heavenly city coming to earth as a bride approaches her groom. Now, I hope by now we're not surprised by this imagery. Hopefully by now, if you've been around for a few weeks, this imagery actually is starting to make really good sense. If you think back to Genesis chapter 2, we saw the creation of sexual difference as a necessary expression of humanity's call to bear the image of God in this world. Jesus affirmed this call by elevating marriage above the patriarchal and sexist assumptions of the Pharisees. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul shows how this covenant union is a sign pointing to Christ's sacrificial love for the church. So by the time we get to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, hopefully it makes sense that the metaphor of God's salvation is a sexual one. An image that once again elevates the significance of our sexuality. We need to be clear at this point, though, that it's not only covenant sex which points to God's salvation. One of the themes running through this sermon series is is that our sexuality is fundamental to our humanity. While sex itself is an important element of that, sexuality is not primarily about sex. Sexuality is primarily about being human in the image of God. In other words, the possibilities for you and I to point to God's salvation are limitless, unbound by relational status. And here, as we come to the end, I want to introduce you to somebody who I think demonstrates this well. In Acts chapter 16, the gospel had made its way to Philippi. Paul and his companions were there looking for ways to proclaim the gospel for the first time in this city. In verse 11 of chapter 16 of Acts, we read this. On the Sabbath, that is Saturday, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Lydia is a fascinating figure in the New Testament. She existed within a culture that had very, very specific expectations for someone like herself someone who apparently uh, was not uh, married at this stage in her life. According to the cultural expectations of her day, she should have been kept within her father's household or uh, been wandering uh, the streets. Yet here she is, a savvy entrepreneur who had become a wealthy businesswoman. Purple is the sign of what? And you see the text tells us that she's a dealer in purple dye. Lydia apparently had figured out how to harvest these little snails, these tiny, tiny little snails from the ocean um, off of the coast of Philippi and extract this purple dye from them. And because like, you could only get a tiny little bit of dye out of each of the snails, it was fabulously expensive. So she was this like, super creative entrepreneur who figured it out and was very, very wealthy. Her, her, she, she has a household, the text tells us, which means she, she has an estate, with many, many people kind of living under her authority. This is who Lydia is. She is not demure. She convinces Paul and his entourage to come into her her home. Appearances be damned. Through her, the gospel of God's salvation is amplified in her city, and it's exemplified in her life. God's resounding yes to Lydia's humanity and to her sexuality, to her gifts, echo throughout the city as a sign of the coming kingdom of God. Sexuality is dangerous because it points to God's salvation. Our sexuality, redeemed and focused, points to what God has done for us and what God is still doing in his creation And this is dangerous precisely because God's salvation challenges the abuse and the injustice that our world has normalized. Lydia living out her personhood as a child of God within the kingdom of God was a physical confrontation to the abusive norms and expectations of her day. Are you with me? Her body testified to a God whose salvation upends the powers and the authorities. There is no relational trajectory here. There is no assumption that you're more human after you get married, after you have 2.5 children. There is no relational hierarchy here. Every one of us who follow Jesus have this dangerous call to testify to God's salvation through our sexuality. Single and married people, divorced and remarried people, gay people and straight people. It is the purpose for each of us in our bodies through our sexuality to point to God's salvation. And the world will find this to be dangerous in a world that commodifies bodies, that turns sex into a loveless, commitless transaction, in a world that ignores the abuses of our sexualized economy on our most vulnerable neighbors, this salvation call is dangerous. But it is also very good. Sexuality is not safe. The sooner that we can accept the danger that is inherent with being sexual people in the way of Jesus, the sooner we will grow into the God-intentioned goodness of our sexuality for our good but also for our neighbors. Amen? Let's pray. the next couple of minutes of silence, could I ask that you would just reflect about which of these three requires your attention today? Is it the ways in which your sexuality is meant to be a reflection of God's holiness? Are there ways in which you have lessened the the significance of who you are, of who God has created you to be? Is it the way in which your sexuality, your humanity makes you vulnerable in this life? Have you looked for ways to shield yourself, to protect yourself that have only made you or led you to greater loneliness? What would it look like to embrace your vulnerability in a way that leads you into deeper and safer community and friendship. Or maybe some of us have missed the ways in which our sexuality is meant to bear witness to God's salvation in our world. We've siloed ourselves somehow to think that only some aspects of who we are matter, to proclaiming and demonstrating the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. In the next minute or so, would you ask the Spirit to speak to you, to encourage you, Holy God, we thank you for new creation. We thank you that when we give our lives to you and we trust our futures to you, and we place whatever amount of faith we have in you, that the old order passes away in our lives. The old order of mourning, of sin and death passes away and new creation. God, we thank you that new creation is coming for your world. That new creation is coming and breaking into your city, into our neighborhoods. We thank you that a day will come not when you abandon this earth, but when you bring your holy city to this earth. When you reclaim and renew all things in your creation. And so we thank you for the new creation that is ours. We ask, Spirit of the living God, that you would empower us to live into this new creation and to do so with all of who we are, including our sexuality, that we would not overlook a square inch of our personhood as we accept the invitation to live out as uh, representatives and ambassadors of your new creation. So this morning, I pray for those of us who need to be reminded of your holiness, that you would encounter us powerfully, that you would humble us, that you would bring us to our knees, that you would reinstill the fear of the Lord in our hearts and our minds, that we would find in encountering a holy God our freedom. Our worship. For those of us who've run away from our vulnerabilities, for those of us who have attempted to cover up tender and raw places with tools that have only isolated us, Spirit, invite us into safe communities and friendships that are centered on you where we can be our vulnerable selves, where our vulnerabilities can lead us into greater friendships greater intimacies, greater places of being known and loved for who you created us to be. And Lord, would you send us as people who see our sexuality and our humanity, all of it, as a way to bear witness to the God who has saved us, as the God who has drawn near as the God who took on to yourself our vulnerabilities for us and for our salvation. So continue to speak to us, Holy Spirit. Continue to reform us and refashion us in your image. Continue to invite us into greater and greater flourishing in you. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.